When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, July 15, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jared Dillian and Jack Farley. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be here, Ash. Yeah. So let's take a look at some of the stories that we're looking at today that are moving markets. Weekly job numbers out today. The initial jobless claims number fell to the lowest level since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. 360,000 new claims. This is a weekly number, the four-week moving average, which can give a better sense of the overall trend, smoothing out some of the higher frequency volatility, fell to 382,500, also a pandemic low. Jack, what are you looking at in markets? Well, I have to be talking about the bond yield with the 10-year bond yield back below 1.30%. Uh, this as really uh, fear prevailed over greed on in the stock market with the S&P 500 down 40 basis points and the Nasdaq dipping uh, 80 basis points. It was energy, the energy sector, as well as IT, you know, the technology sector that led the way down. Strange bedfellows. You don't really see those trading uh, alike uh, that often. And it was the defensive utility sector that was one of the few sectors that was ending uh, in the green. Ash? Yeah, I was looking at that myself. Looks like uh, XLK, the sector select spider for technology off 0.95%. XLE, sector select for energy off 1.55%, the two weakest players in the space today. Jack, I'm also looking at the manufacturing surveys, a raft of manufacturing data out today. The Empire State Manufacturing Index came in at the highest level since 2004. That's a 17-year high. Uh, This is for both new orders and for shipments. Consensus at 18, actual 43, prior 17.4, so significant change to the upside over prior month. Industrial Production and Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index both came in below estimate, but the Philadelphia number had been sizzling after the reopening. Uh, Two months ago, it came in at the highest level in nearly 50 years, 1973, the last time. This is the May number on Philadelphia reached that level. So a little bit of volatility, obviously high-frequency data series month to month, but trend overall clearly in line with the reopening trade. Jared, what are you looking at today? It's a pleasure to have you back on. I read the Daily Dirt Nap, your newsletter. Lots going on in your mind on inflation on equities, on bonds. What are you looking at right now? Well, it's funny, you know, you bring up Empire State and Philly Fed. Um, You know, so I'm like old, right? So I started trading in 1999. And, you know, at the desk, early 2000s, you know, if you had uh, an ISM number come in, and back then they called it NAPM, National Association of Purchasing Managers. They changed to ISM later, so we called it NAPM. So if NAPM came in over 50, the bond market would tank. And 
like it, it, it meant that the Fed was going to do an imminent intermeeting rate hike. Like that's what that meant. That, that's because back then the Fed was vigilant about inflation. So you had Powell's testimony today concurrently with Empire State and Philly Fed showing the biggest readings in 50 years. And it's it's insanity to me what's going on in the markets. Now, you know, the inflation trade worked for about six months and now it's correcting. OK, and this I mean, it's a divergence of epic proportions. Right. And eventually, I you know. How, I don't understand how you cannot believe in the inflation trade long term when you see the Fed completely unwilling to raise rates until 2022 at the soonest, and you see these manufacturing surveys coming in at 50-year highs right. and CPI at 5.4 percent, and you know the month-to-month annualized number is 10 percent. Like this is crazy stuff. So when you see tens going below 130. Like, I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I don't have an explanation for it. Like, you know, markets tend to do what screw the most people most of the time, right? So obviously the inflation trade got pretty crowded, right? So we so we have to work off some of that speculative sentiment. So it's going to take a couple of months. But, you know, just in the short term, like, it's nuts. Jared, I've got a have explanation for it either. But let me just ask you this. We know what the explanation is coming out of uh, the Fed, coming from the chairman on the Hill today and yesterday talking to Congress. It's uh, basically second verse, same as the first. It's what we heard yesterday. It's effectively transitory pockets of, uh, of hot pricing, but not sustained. It is this notion that it is a reopening trade, that it's a rebound effect. What do you make of the explanation that we're receiving from Chairman Powell in relation to the data you see. It's total horseshit, right? <laughs> did you did you see the Stephen Roach piece that was on? I forget, I forget what website it was on. So Stephen Roach used to be chief economist at Morgan Stanley. And he did this whole history of Arthur Burns in the 1970s. And you know, Arthur Burns was the smartest guy in the room and you know, Fed chair. And what they did back then, when when they started to get inflation, you know, when it was oil prices because of the embargo, he says, well, this is. He didn't use the word transitory, but he said this is this is an outlier and basically excluded it from CPI. And then food prices started to go up, and it was because of a shortage of Peruvian anchovies, okay, that were that were feeding into like feed for livestock that was going into food prices. So he excluded food. And so what he essentially did was he created core inflation and he ended up excluding 65% of the basket. So only 35% of the basket remained, and even that part was going up 14%. So it's literally, you know, Gunlock today was saying, you know, this reminds me of the 70s. It's, it's, you know, it's different for a lot of reasons, but, you know, ideologically, it's the same. What if we exclude all major, eight major sectors from CPI? Where will it be then? Can we get it flat? <laughs> it's not, it's, it's, it's not transitory. I mean, I look like, you know, in my newsletter, I have a lot of subscribers. And the nice thing about it is, you know, I have a lot of people in the financial industry, but I also have a lot of people who work in the real world. I got, I have a guy who who has potato chip plant, right? So I don't remember the details of the email he sent me, but basically he's like, dude, he's like, it's not, it's not transitory. I've hiked wages three times this year. My input costs are up. None of this is getting better. Like if you live in the real world, this is what's happening. 
question, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. That, my question for Jared is that, you know, let, let's wind the clock back six months. We would have red hot inflation prints that would beat not just the median expectation, but pretty much every expectation of, of the economists in the estimate. And as a result, energy stocks would soar, uh, bond yields would soar, technology stocks, long duration stocks, your Teslas, your Zooms, they would plummet. Now, Jared, we have the exact same economic data of inflation prints red hot uh, of whether it was um, you know, the CPI on Tuesday or the, the PPI yesterday, very hot um, numbers that are coming down the pike, but the market is reacting in the exact opposite way with bond yields declining. So my question for you, Jared, is you know, a lot of people say the bond market is the smartest money. The bond market can sniff out that the economy is slowing. Do you think that the bond market is, is right about that? No, absolutely not. I mean, the bond market, it, you know, I have a lot of experience with bonds. It's frequently more irrational than the stock market. A lot of people believe that bonds are mathematical and they're, you know, no, I mean, the bond market is irrational a lot. Okay. So, I mean, the fashionable thing to say now is that bonds are rallying for technical reasons, which could be short covering, could be a number of things. I actually tend to believe that. You know, I tend to believe that explanation. You know, with rates below 130, like, do, do you see a slowdown? I don't see a slowdown. I bought a piece of land in December. It's doubled in six months. There's no slowdown. Like, it's crazy. This is 130 on the 10 you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jared, who are you going to believe, the Fed or your lying eyes? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's just tough because it, here's the problem. Like, um, you know, as somebody who works in the financial industry, you have a Bloomberg, you have a launch pad and you watch prices all day. You stare at the screen and you get this high frequency information uh, and the high frequency information is bad for decision making. You know what I mean? Because it's 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 too much information. The periodicity is too high. If you step back away from the screens, like if I didn't look at my Bloomberg for six months, like I would, I would just say, looks like there's a lot of inflation to me, you know, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be paying attention to the bond market or, you know, utilities or anything like that. So. Yeah, this is an interesting, I always think part of the Austrian critique of the Fed, which is this idea that the Fed has all of these, you know, perfectly calibrated gauges that they can understand with great precision, the things that are happening on almost a day by day or week by week basis. And the question is, Jared, as you bring up, does more information paradoxically create worse decision making? Yeah, I, oftentimes I believe it does. And, you know, Greenspan is criticized a lot as Fed chair, mostly for his decisions leading up to the financial crisis. But he was actually he was actually a very good Fed chair. And one of the reasons was, uh, you know, a lot of times he went with his gut and he didn't get bogged down in, you know, all the data that was generated by the Fed economists. So um, it's just a lot of it's just common sense. Yeah, Jared, we got a question from an audience member, Prius Omega, and it's one I'm actually very interested in what you have to say. It says bond yields are tanking, inflation numbers are red hot. As a result, real yields are, have been uh, have are under pressure that they've never seen before. They're deeply negative. Why is gold and the GDX doing so poorly? GDX being the gold miners ETF, and of course, gold and real rates are inversely. Uh, uh, related. So if you swap, if you flip one of the axes, they'll trade pretty much in lockstep, but they're not now, Jared. Why? Actually, I don't, I don't think gold is doing that bad. You know, I, you know, I went through a bunch of charts last week of commodities and stocks and, you know, uh, I went through, actually, I went through a charts of stuff that I owned and, 
this is sort of a humbling exercise, but I looked at, you know, I have like 25 positions and I looked at all the charts and I'm like, all these charts are terrible. Everything I own is a bad chart. The only thing that wasn't a bad chart was gold. You know, gold is kind of in the middle of the range. It's in technical no man's land. Like it's not behaving super poorly. People see people just have very high expectations for gold because they think of it as an inflation hedge. Okay. And it's not really an inflation hedge, but, you know, CPI prints 5.4% and they say, well, gold should rip. doesn't always work that way. You know, the one thing that gold has the highest correlation to? Budget uh, deficits. Budget uh, deficits. Yes. So what's what's happened in the last couple of months? Well, Biden spent, a, you know, a bunch of money in the first couple of months of his presidency. And now it's kind of stopped. We're going to have $3 trillion deficits this year. But it looks like, you know, all the tax hikes and everything else are dead in the water. So, you know, I'm not surprised that gold is stalled. So, you know, I've held it for 16 years. That's, you know, I I don't pay attention to the data at all. I just hold it and, you know, it's going to work out. Yeah, I would say that uh, with real yields so negative and the fact that gold hasn't broken out yet, that would actually perhaps be good if it would incline one to buy more gold or, or than one would because you know real yields are so deeply negative and um, gold gold could be due for a bounce. And of course, when I'm talking about real yields, I'm talking about the 10-year nominal yield of, of treasuries minus not inflation, not the CPI, but actually inflation expectations, which are baked into the treasury inflation um, protected securities. Ash, do you have something to say? Hey, Jack, yes, since you and Prius Omega brought that up, this reminds me, I know that you were looking at a piece by Roger Hurst, uh, Real Vision, on the pro tier, talking about the correlation between real yields and gold. Let's take a look at that clip. Well, first, let's just look at real yields, because that's the purest one, despite what Raoul and Julian said. And you can see here that gold is a mirror image of real yields. When real yields go down, gold goes up and vice versa. And then when I flip that, that I've inverted the, the real yield, you can see just how closely they track each other. So here you can see that again, they map onto each other very, very well. When I use the 10 year yield, it's still good. It's still good. It's a little bit more air in there in that middle portion, as you can see here, but the 10 year versus gold is still good. When it goes up, when yields are going up, gold's going down. When those real yields are going down, gold is going up. So it still works. One thing that they said is, well, should we use the real yield which is you know the 10-year, which is broken down into nominal inflation expectations, and nominal minus inflation expectations gives you your real yield. Or should we deflate the 10-year by CPI, consumer prices, which obviously has surged to 5%. You can see here that when you deflate by CPI, that collapse in real yields is far, far more impressive. And this is why a lot of people are super, super, super bullish of gold here, because when you deflate by CPI, we should be off to the races. And actually, when you look at gold versus that 10-year versus CPI, it's actually a pretty good chart over the last 10 years. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So that clip was on the pro tier uh, of Real Vision, where Roger is explaining the talks, the monthly talks between Raul and Julian, and the combination of Raul and Julian's talk and the inside the episode that comes out once a month. Ash, it is a, it is among my favorite uh, content on Real Vision. Really, no competition. 
And I think it's the best macro content on the internet. Yeah, Roger is absolutely amazing. But speaking of this infinite regress, can you explain Roger explaining Raul and Julian? Kidding aside, tell us a little bit about the view that Roger takes in terms of the correlation between uh, gold and real yields. We should say chart uh, y-axis inverted for yield. Yeah, well, I think the idea, Ash, is that you want to compare gold to what you can earn uh, in a, in a risk-free way that's adjusted for inflation. So when you can earn negative money, when you actually are paying money in inflation-adjusted terms, uh, that makes you more inclined to be attracted to gold as a safe safe haven. Whereas if rates are at 15% and inflation is at 0%, you're, you're not really inclined at all to buy gold because you can get 15% risk-free inflation, inflation-free. Um, so Jerry, I, I know that you are sounding the alarm, uh, no, you know, you're, you're pounding the table on gold right now. Uh, how are you viewing other assets? You know, what, what's the opportunity that you're most excited about? Are you adding to your winners, you know, in energy on, on the dip? Are you, you, you know, t testing the waters and perhaps a short sale? Um, what, what do you got your eye on in the markets? Well, I am thinking about energy. We, you know, we've had a nice correction in energy and uh, I'm still bullish on it long term. Um, I'm pretty big already. Um, you know, I, I what I would advise people is if uh, if you don't have uh, an allocation to energy or you're kind of small, this would be a good time to add to your position. Uh, I think there's probably a little bit more downside. I think you could get XLE to 47 or 48. Um, like I said, I'm pretty big already, so I'm not sure that I'm going to add. But um, I, this is I, I think it's a healthy correction. Let's put it that way. Yeah, um, it's Jared. Now let's move on to a more idiosyncratic trade, which I believe the last time you were on, you talked about selling naked calls against AMC. Um, a call, of course, being the right to buy something. So you're betting that it doesn't spike up higher. And we've had the exact opposite happen. Uh, AMC is now down trading in the 30s. So uh, take take a little victory lap for us, Jared. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you why that trade worked. Okay. Um, and I can't remember if I talked about this the last time I was on, but it's it's all about big sentiment markers. So, you know, when Glencore went public in 2007, it was a top of commodities. When Blackstone went public in 2008, it was a top of private equity for the time being. When Coinbase went public, it was a top of crypto. Robinhood is going public. So they announced last week that they were going public, which means it is the top of meme stocks. So that was the main reason why I put on that trade. You know, not to mention the, you know, it was it was 200 vol. Um, you know, I sold the August 65 calls for like 11 bucks. You know, like a two month option at 20% a spot. I mean, it was just it was just a very obvious trade. So uh, seemed risky at the time, but it it worked out almost immediately. We should probably add, as you point out in the Daily Dirt Nap, this was a piker size trade. This is your place piker, money. Yeah, that, yeah. It was six points in my portfolio. So, <laughs> so you're you're not writing uh, naked calls against massive positions on highly volatile yeah. uh, equities at large scale. Uh, important to point out. But it's interesting, you know, it almost is is back to the thesis that in a in a weird sort of paradoxical or uh, tragic way, depending on your perspective, that markets often behave as uh, almost with malice, if you were to uh, look at it from uh, like from the position of an alien, it's like the greatest number of people, the greatest pain. But that sort of gets into the thesis of trades getting overcrowded. 
Yeah, I mean, for sure, the inflation trade got overcrowded, you know. And then, of course, you had the Barrett's cover, like right at the top. You had the Barrett's cover. Is inflation back? And when I saw that, I was like, oh, dear Lord, like I can't. That's really bad timing. Uh, so I remember, I knew, yeah, I knew I was going to take a drawdown. But um, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is part of investing. It's, you know, there's you have winners and losers. But Jared, that's the thing. It was the top. It, it you know, was a top. Uh, a signal of a correction for inflation assets like energy, um, you know, like short bonds, whatever. But it really wasn't on top for inflation itself. You know, now the CPI that came out this week was 5.4% compared to the 5% that yeah. came oh, yeah. before it. So what, 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 you know, what's going to happen, Jerry, if we keep on getting these massive inflation beats? Like how much longer, you know, before the system will buckle and break? And of course, by the system, I'm talking about the it's transitory system. Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, I, it'll, it'll resolve itself one way or another. Okay. And maybe, you know what, maybe the bond market is right. Let's just entertain that possibility. We should entertain all possibilities. You know, let's say tens trade to 1% or below. Right. And we have a, I mean, it's just, it's ludicrous. Like like the idea of a slowdown. So I live in Myrtle beach. This just came out the other day. Myrtle beach is the number one fastest growing city in America. It's a food fight here. Like when you talk about economic activity, it I, it's so hot. So maybe it's just a function of, you know, the the places I go and the things I see and stuff like that, but as I look around where I am, there's no slowdown. There's there's no slowdown at all. Actually, to exactly that point, here's a question that comes to us from Gears Demon. Uh, the question is, how likely is it the Fed will be forced to raise rates if inflation continues? I'll add some color to that uh, and ask uh, Jared, what the heck does it take? At what point do they say, okay, maybe this isn't transitory, isolated, rebound, et cetera? I mean, is there is there something out there hovering that will cause a, a jump function? So have you ever been ratioed on Twitter? <laughs> I have not had the pleasure. So, so I've I've been ratioed on Twitter a couple times. It's not fun. Okay, tell, tell folks fun. what ratioed well, means. But so what you what you're experiencing when that happens, what you're experiencing is is a wave of discontent with your behavior, right? So, if you're Jay Powell, like basically he needs to get ratioed. Like the whole country needs to be pissed off about inflation. We're starting to see early signs of that. Did you see the New York Post cover about inflation? Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is the beginning of public opinion building against the Fed. And if you get inflation to six, seven, eight, nine percent, like it'll get loud enough that they will they'll be forced into action. Yeah. Let me just say for people who don't know what ratio is, ratio is this phenomenon that happens on Twitter when your replies are higher than the number of likes, meaning more people are yelling at you than agreeing with you by liking the tweet. <laughs> Go ahead, Jack. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I, I, sh I should add, I think that the Fed said as, you know, th three three months ago or something that um, they are plan of three quarters of tapering before they hike rates. So there's, according to the Fed's promises, they're not going to hike rates before they start QE. And of course, before they start QE, they have to start thinking about QE. And before they start thinking about QE, they have to start thinking about thinking about it. So I think that they are thinking about it. But you know, the question is, when are they going to announce it? Um, Jared, do you have any any insight on that, on when the Federal Reserve will will um, or, you know, start start talking or when will they actually start tapering their balance sheet? 
Uh, I, you know, honestly, I, I think a taper, it could be possible in the next two or three meetings, um, a taper of 20 or 30 billion or something like that. I think that is possible. Uh, a rate hike is very far off in the future because they're probably going to taper over the course of six to eight months before you get the rate hike. So late 2022 for a rate hike. You know, if I was trading Fed funds or Eurodollar futures, I actually think it's pretty fairly priced. I don't think there's any obvious mispricings. I, I think the market estimate is pretty much correct. So, yeah. All right. I'm thinking about thinking about moving on to the next question. This comes to us uh, from Ralph Humphrey. It's a two-part question for Jared. Part number one, uh, Jared, can you tell us about the coffee trade? Part number two, can you tell us about the sports car? Uh, what's the coffee trade? Do you know? I, I don't know what the coffee trade is. I think this is a throwback to uh, something that Tom Thornton uh, was talking about. Was it yesterday talking about soft commodities in general and coffee more specifically? Is that a trade that you're active in? Uh, I traded some coffee about six months ago, but um, I, yeah, I don't know what he's talking about. I can tell you about the sports car. Yeah, uh, I bought a, a 2020 Corvette, um, one of the mid engines. It's black. And I have dirt nap plates on it. <laughs> <laughs> it lots like of mobile. Lots of folks will be coming up in South Carolina to say hello. I have a feeling. Yep. Oh, we got a, we got another question for Jared from from Ralph. Actually, what's Jared's view on USO or ERX versus XLE? So, uh, just for the audience, the XLE is the pretty vanilla. Um, um, S&P, SPDR, energy ETF. I think like over 20% of it is ExxonMobil, so it's market cap weighted. ERX, I just looked this up, is the twice 2x levered bull ETF on energy. So what do you think about that? And then USO, I think, is um, the US oil fund, which has a series of futures, which is not the same as owning a barrel of oil. So Jared, what are your thoughts on USO, ERX, and XLE? Uh, well, first of all, I don't trade leveraged ETFs, and you shouldn't either. So don't trade ERS or X or whatever it is. Um, sure, sure. Can you explain why? Because I think a lot of people are see that, and they very often when they see levered ETFs, they don't understand uh, how they get recalculated. They don't understand the longer-term risks of owning those products. Can you give a little bit of background on why that's the case? Yeah. So let's say you have a, a two-times levered NASDAQ ETF. So the leveraged ETF doesn't own the stocks. What it owns is a swap that gives two times the return of the NASDAQ, okay? So the fund only promises two times the daily return. But a lot of people, when they buy it, they think they're getting two times the annual return. So what happens is, is that every day the swap has to rebalance. And basically, like it kind of buys a little when it's up and it sells a little when it's down and it sort of bleeds a little bit of value uh, on a daily basis. And that's proportional to the volatility. So the more volatile it is, the more value it loses. So if you have a two times leverage ETF and you look at two times the underlying, it'll underperform over time. And that can be significant in periods of high volatility. I mean, there's sometimes people buy a two times leverage ETF and it goes down when the underlying goes up. So it, it's because right. of that daily rebalancing. So don't trade leveraged ETFs. Yeah, these uh, are definitely adult swim. QLD and TQQ is the, uh, are the pro shares, um, pro shares uh, basically the levered ETFs, 2X and 3X. And Jared, what about USO? So USO is um, it's a commodity ETF, and it owns crude futures. 
Now, USO ran into problems when oil prices went negative. Um, shortly before oil prices went negative, they moved out futures uh, across the curve to like the third and fourth month. I, they've changed their perspective so many times. I don't really know what they hold anymore. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure they've been sued by the SEC. So if you want to trade crude oil, my recommendation is just open a futures account and trade the futures. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, it's my understanding that um, USO has dramatically underperformed uh, energy stocks like XO, you know, uh, ExxonMobil, XLE, or the price of oil itself because they own the futures and uh, they have they're paying roll yield. So they're, you know, for being hurt by the contango. My question, Jared, do you think there's any chance of actually benefiting now from the role, uh, you know, the role yield now because it's in backwardation? Like, do you, yeah. how do you owning a, you know, 2025 oil contract versus let's say XLE? Yeah, I, I mean, or you mean USO, like- um, Oh, USO, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, if USO has a positive role yield, then great, but- it's just it's just a lot cleaner in the futures. You're in control of when you roll the contract, um, and yeah, I just I, I've I've traded USO in the past, and uh, it was actually it was in 2014, um, and basically this was when North Dakota was like you know first coming online, and they were like drilling for millions of barrels of oil, and I said the oil is definitely going down, so I shorted it. I had that position for six months. I got bored with it. I closed it. Then Zach Schreiber shorted oil at Point State, and uh, he sold a couple billion dollars worth, and it went from 100 to 40, and I missed the whole move. So, Very interesting. We got Jared, we got another question for you from Beaumont who wants to know, isn't it nearly impossible for the Fed to raise rates when the debt-to-GDP ratio is so high at about 130%, uh, and when unfunded liabilities plus debt are at 500% of GDP? I know you got a lot of thoughts about Social Security. Yeah, a lot of people are saying that. I mean, I saw Luke Roman said that on Twitter the other day. I mean, look, like we can we can raise rates a little, okay? We can raise rates to two percent, okay? And by the way, if we do that, the curve's probably going to flatten and invert. So it's not like long-term yields are going to go higher. Um, no, I mean we're not going to raise rates to three percent. And if we did, then we would have a solvency crisis. So, but I, that's, it's, it's kind of like, it's something that's not going to happen. So, yeah. Jared, as we come to the end of this 30 minutes, can you give us a big picture overview, what you think viewers should take away from this conversation? Uh, I mean, if you're, um, if, if you're an inflationista, like people like to call me, then, uh, you know, stick it out for a little bit longer. I think things are going to be getting, are going to be okay. Uh, and if you're a deflationista, what I would recommend is you've had a nice run the last couple of months, cover your shorts and uh, get out of the way. Yeah, words Jared, of warning. We're, yeah, words of warning, words of wisdom. Jared, I got to say, if you're not an inflationista, who is? <laughs> <laughs> Jared, always a pleasure. Thank you again for joining us. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Jack. And thank you for watching, everyone. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for your participation. See you tomorrow. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.